I was trying to be rich and famous and still make it on the other side of what I'm trying to make it to. It's a it's a difficult thing. And if this was the way that it had to go down, I'm I'm glad it was me. You know, I'm not really it's gonna make for an exciting story. So, today's guest, I'm going to introduce him by asking you guys a trivia question. And I'm going to do it like my man Alex Trebek would do in the form of a Jeopardy question. He holds the record for most filmed, most distributed comedy specials of all time. Who is? Cat Williams. And he's my guest today on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. So, we're about to get into it, y'all. No subject will go untouched. Let's do it. So the reason hip hop became such a phenomenon is because rappers, they were our CNN, our NBC, our truth tellers. They were on these streets before it was popular to be on these streets and reporting about what was happening in these streets. I kind of look at today's guests in the same way as our correspondent into what the hell is really going on. So I'm super excited to welcome one of the original truth tellers, my man, Cat Williams. So I'm sure, Cat Williams, a lot of people tell you how much you changed their lives when you gave us what I consider to be the gospel of haterism. When you told us in Pimp Chronicles Part 1 that, you know, if you got 14 haters, get you 16. If you got 20, get you 40. And I'm telling you, that has literally been, especially as I've gone through different things, um, now being in the public eye, that has literally been a guiding principle for me. And part of the reason why I really don't get all that bothered by some of the hatred and backlash that I've received it's because I studied from the book of Cat Williams. So I want to just personally thank you for that before, uh, you know, we get to diving into deeper issues. I'm sure when you said that, uh, you probably, I don't know, did you know that that was going to become like a, a guiding principle for a lot of people? Because that was perfect perspective. Well, you hope. But, you know, I speak for a specific demographic. And so I'm I'm hoping that it resonates. You, you're never sure what's what's going to last and what's not. I'm just thankful that there's enough in the body of work that meant something to people, you know. Comedy is is um, very, very quick if it's not done right, and you're trying to get this longevity out of it. And the only way you can really do that is for the aunt and the uncle and the cousin and the baby mama all to have shared laughs with you, and then you become like a family institution. I'm very thankful for it. Well, your career still going, obviously, very strongly, but it's just really been amazing um, when looked at in its, its totality. And as, as, as much as, um, you know, you received your just due as Alligator Man, uh, winning <laughs> an Emmy, which was, uh, which was awesome. Thanks. Probably one of my favorite roles that I don't think enough people talk about that you play is the hitchhiker and father figure. And because I, I guess I'm always fascinated when a comedian such as yourself, who's 
known as being boisterous, who has this lively personality when you play somebody a little more understated, you know, because I could definitely see you playing like a super dramatic, you know, role. What was it about that role in particular that appealed to you? How did it come about? Honestly, it's it's probably my only role with a great story for that question. Like I, I didn't I didn't read that script and go, boy, this role is for me. I, I read that script and I I was trying to put other comedians in it and I just it was too precarious of a role. It was on the cusp of coonery and yet it was so essential that it be delivered understanding what was at stake and I once I put it on paper I, I understood, okay, you can do this because this is this has to be done just right because see it was based on a true story and that's where you always have some issues when you have the black guy in all white cast and they pick him up and he's down on his luck and you know what I mean? Like it was just so important that he had a family and kids waiting for him and that he was a and all of these roles I I relate them to my life so I'm always able to bring truth to the role because in essence, it's based on somebody or a collection of somebody's. So um, it makes the job a little easier for me. But it that was the only one where I didn't go, I want to play this. I went, this has got to be played just right. And I was proud to be able to do it. So I, the role of Perry on Blackish. Um, mm-hmm. So what do you relate that role to in your in your own life? It was the love for the institution of Blackish, for what that show has brought to the airwaves for an extended period of time. Um, back even when the Cosby show was in fashion, a part of what we needed so much was to see a good black family doing well and struggling and raising their kids. And it was the commonalities. And we we don't have a black actress closer to royalty other than Meghan Markle than Tracy Ellis Ross. She is truly a gem amongst gems. And Anthony Anderson is black. <laughs> that, that's the extent of what you have to say about him. <laughs> like, no, he's no. He's a, he's a gem in his own, own right. He's almost her counterpoint. I'm saying he comes from Compton, California, where you don't get a lot of movie and television stars for him to come from there to where he is. Um, And the fact that he was on Pimp Chronicles Volume 1, Jeez Louise, (laughs) makes everything full circle. But yeah, in, in, in relevance to their show and what it means to the black family, this side part of the show was this young lady leaving that household and having to go back to the real world. So I wanted to be a part of that. And the young lady who happens to be acting in that role is um, a gem for any young minority actress trying to figure herself out. So it it was um, a blessing all the way around, actually. I understand, um, based off our off-air conversation, you have a little breaking news for us. And this is the first time on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, we've had some breaking news. Dun, dun, dun. So uh, apparently you and Netflix have worked out a deal. Tell me about uh, the details of that. What are you doing with Netflix? Next special. Best special. Mm. I haven't said best special in a while. It, this, this will at least be the best special I've ever done. Better than Pimp Chronicles. Yeah, because it's going to act as an extension of that. I refuse to 
snitch, but I need to be able to tell, if that makes sense. And so that requires a lot of times that you be quiet while you're going through your valley. Mm-hmm. You're not publicizing what's really going on. And so in my way of having to work it through backwards, I've been trying to lay out a body of work while I go through this valley without ever identifying what it is. Just praying that everything would line up and by the time it was time to finally expose, you know, my truth, the stage would be there and ready. And Netflix just recently made that happen. So again, we work. Now you said expose your truth. Um, Obviously, anybody who kind of reads about you or Googles you sees that you have been through a lot of different things, um, some turbulence at times. How have you handled all of that? And how do you hope to bring that to this new project? In most careers, we know what's going on with the person because I'm, I have a platform where I can immediately speak what's going on. The only thing that could be holding me back is me. So in each of these, when it's time to do one of these specials, it's not that I'm not telling the truth about everything I'm talking about. It's that there are other things I could be talking about that I haven't hit on for an extended period of time. Probably Pimp Chronicles Volume 1, because in, in that moment, I'm telling my people, hey, guys, I'm going undercover. I'm going over here where they don't like guys like me, and I'm going to see how this works. Well... I had to take all of the blows without saying what the blows are, where the blows are coming from, what um, the situation is. And um, I've been under federal investigation for like six years. I had no idea it would take that long. Um, But I found out that they're just not in a hurry to vindicate you. If they think they're going to find something that's going to crucify you, they're very, very gung-ho to get there. But Um, They're not, as you know, in the business to make you personally look good. They don't, that doesn't um, serve the purpose. So this is the collection of all of those things I've been putting to the side. This is that special. How does one live under federal investigation for six years? It's pretty much just um, being in your own reality show. You identify that. This could very well be a setup. You approach it as as good as you can. And then when it goes off the rails, you feel a little bit better knowing that it's being watched. Now, is it, um, I read this somewhere, and if this, you know, isn't true, I apologize, but uh, that you, when you collected your Emmy, it caused you to miss a court date. That you didn't know that you were missing a court date. I should say that, up for, up, up, you know, up front, but... Um, Is that what happened? Without giving away too much, um, in my search for who was this enemy that was causing all these things to repeatedly happen to me over and over again when it shouldn't, we uncovered that it was actually my people that was involved. So we didn't really know that until the Department of Justice started indicting these people for the embezzlement of $59 million from Cat Williams. So once that happened, everybody got fired, but in everybody getting fired, now their way of 
retaliation was to make sure that he doesn't get any of his information that he, you know, it's basically uh, low class extortion, but they didn't give me my invitations to the Emmy. They didn't tell me that I was supposed to be presenting. They didn't, they didn't do anything for I made, I had like $14 million in the bank. That was all gone. Like as with most of us that are going through things, what we can be most proud of is how we handle ourselves while things are going on. I want to make sure I, I clarify this correctly because there's a part of me that my my mind is kind of blown. But did you just say that that you have fifty nine million dollars embezzled from you by people in your own camp? This is the only reason the Department of Justice and the IRS were all involved is they thought that I have found some way to sequester the funds until they actually dug in and realized why would I be money laundering my money? <laughs> right. It's yours, right? You don't right. need to <laughs> Right. So it's been a lot and a lot of it you can't really talk about and um it's ongoing and a lot of this is with involving people of color and loved ones and family members, you know. And you don't want to air that if you don't have to, but um, with that type of money that we're discussing, it makes people willing to do some amazing things that you wouldn't believe. So most of these situations where it looks like I'm just in some minor altercation, that is not what it was meant to be. Just God's grace and quick hands. I don't know how ha how one handles that, you know, to know that, you know, people I presumably you trusted, you loved. Yeah. You know, what's the... For you, what's the emotional impact of of basically being betrayed? A, I don't really take myself that seriously. Dude, like, we talking like, about fifty nine million. I'm, I'm. Look, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus de Cristo. So, um, back in my younger days, I wondered how he could have gathered twelve and had Judas there. You know what I mean? And now I don't have to wonder that anymore. I see how these things transpire, and that's really what I wanted to get out of this. I was trying to be rich and famous and still make it on the other side of what I'm trying to make it to. It's a, it's a difficult thing, and if this was the way that it had to go down, I'm, I'm glad it was me. You know, I'm not really... It's going to make for an exciting story. Yeah, so now I see why you said that special is going to be the best <laughs> one that you, you've ever done. Right. I guess in going through something that, again, I, I could never imagine, and I think most people listening right now couldn't, how do you learn to develop relationships after going through something like that? I wouldn't even trust myself if I go through something like that. But, I mean, what's the aftermath of this for you in terms of how you look at the relationships in your life? I hate to say this religiously, but that's how I can relate to it. Like, Satan is just a loser, okay? And so, as a loser, he picks losers, he uses losers, he's got loser tactics. I've been in in warfare with him for two decades minimum, so um, I smell him on other people's breath. I, I get it, you know, but by the same token... Um, no matter how strong your enemy is, he's clearly not that strong because you're still here. I'm still here. It, it makes him a loser. So I, I don't I don't make any of this personal. I didn't trust people anyway. 
I was trusting something bigger than us. And um, that's part of what the play is. The play is you do good, you put good stuff out there and bad stuff comes back. That's supposed to make you feel like, oh, that's it. No more good stuff for me. Like, can't do it. Like, that's him winning. So we, we don't allow that. Financially, what's your situation <laughs> Are you after such significant losses? <clears throat> That's the whole thing. I don't, we take these losses and we craft these into wins. So I'll say I was millions over the competition at the last special. That was last year. And I think they doubled it this time. So I'm saying. So you get basically. Yeah. 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 And I always, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was a slow yeah, yes. Yeah. That was a slow yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I don't, I don't, I don't really judge it on that. Like, like that, that part. I've always had, like, my employer is my fan base, and they have never left um, any of my offerings on the vine. They've always made it possible for me to be able to have the hardcore stance and the crazy life that I have because of their undying support and the fact that they believe that we all believe some core tenets and that we stick to that code and no matter what happens a he's going to behave admirably and b he's going to tell us about it if he makes a misstep so well one thing people may not know but you hold the record for most filmed and and distributed comedy specials which i think is Amazing and going up a notch and going up a notch, <laughs> oh, right? Yes. Like that's oh, in, yes. that's an incredible, you know, statistic to have, um, especially considering, you know, when you read, let's just say mainstream reviews at times of your work, people have accused you of not appealing to enough people. Basically, they mean white people, right? And I find it interesting that some reviewers have said that about you, given that you hold that record. And I'm trying to make them say that. Really? Just, just understand that that racist undertone has to be revealed by them. That can't be revealed by me. There is no white guy that we would say, you know, <clears throat> Louis C.K. is special, but... He don't appeal to Negroes enough. It's it's an it's an asinine statement because as comedians we are singularly speaking. It is up to the audience to decide who they relate to. If that means that I don't go out of my way to appeal to the majority, it's not really the this that they think it is. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, you know, along those uh, same lines, you did something that from a business standpoint is extraordinary. You you own all your own material, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do you have the foresight to do that when so many comedians do not do that? So many people, I mean, musicians, a lot of people, how do you have the foresight to do that? How would you pull it off? Early on, I was taught that um, show business is broken into two parts. Uh, one part is show, one part is business. And generally, the comedians that have no show have the most business. And the comedians with the most business don't have the best show. So I tried to formulate myself where I was equal parts show and business. That's answer number one. Answer number two is my audience helped me believe. So whereas the critics might say he's not appealing to uh, this mainstream audience, 
we know that we have the highest number of white attendees in our audience than any comedian, hands down. <laughs> and, so, and so we don't lose sight of that either. What's important is that it's not just comedy, that it, that it has a meaning later, that maybe Jamel Hill might say it affected her in a positive way. And that's the extra that you get from our line of work. Do you consider yourself an iconic comedian? Let me explain what I think an iconic comedian is. I think, I think that an icon in general is a person who has separated himself from his peer group. I'm sure that in the milk business, there was a lot of people all through history who were great milkers or had the most cows. Mary Pasture came and put it on the map. Based upon that, I know I'm iconic, but it's just as much responsibility to be an icon as anything else. What are the challenges? Because I, I, I think about um, you know this often uh, because I had a conversation with uh, some of my friends about it, and I had a conversation with a, another uh, comedian about it about you know the challenge of comedy in today's climate and times. Because I think about something like Eddie Murphy Raw or even Delirious or even literally any of Richard Pryor's specials. Could any of those be made now? And so (laughs) you're shaking your head. So for you as somebody who's a straight from the hip comedian, not afraid to speak his mind, um, how is it challenging for you in in 2019 and 18 to to work your comedy around uh, what is a more sensitive climate? Absolutely, without without question. It just means that your your base has to go through several more filters than it used to. Comedy used to be very free. Um, you think it, you say it, and the more extreme what you're saying is, the better. And it was a thing done in privacy. <clears throat> None of that is the case anymore. But it brings out the best in you as a comedian. Um, We always want to look back fondly and say that things were better before. But I actually think they're better now. Because now you have to say something and then cross-examine. All right, if I'm an American Indian and I hear this joke, do I have a problem with this joke? Let me make sure black people that don't think like me don't have a problem with this joke. You think a white person will have a problem with this joke? All of that is necessary for the essence of what we sell. The importance of doing comedy specials is to encapsulize how you were feeling then. There are ways that I felt in my last specials that I don't feel now. You know, that's um, a part of growth. And so um, that's why it's important to get the body of work out when you can, because you don't know that period of time may no longer exist. And um, that's why it's important to score. Yeah. Um, Neil Brennan said something interesting about your Great America comedy special that's on Netflix. He said uh, he was discussing specifically the, the 12 minutes that you spent in the open on Jacksonville. And uh, this is what Neil said. It's like comedic malpractice it shouldn't work but yet at the end of that 12 minute opener i feel good i'm in the palm of his hand 
You know, most comics will come out and shout out the city they're performing in. Chris Rock famously did DC Chocolate City for Bring the Pain. So, of course, he mentioned Marion Barry at the top. Everybody who plays New York will open with a food or neighborhood bit, yada, yada, yada. But to do 12 minutes on America's, like, 30th most populous city, the commitment alone is hilarious. And miraculously, you stay with him the whole time. What do you think about that? <laughs> Neil Brennan has a way with words. I think we can all agree. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I've been to Jacksonville. Buddy, I don't want to spend 12 minutes in Jacksonville, much less talking about Jacksonville for 12 minutes. He kind of understood what was being done there. So I, I understand completely what he's saying about comedic malpractice. Because remember, uh, in the real estate of your special, you shouldn't have time for 12 minutes on Jacksonville. But what I was doing was a bit of comedic flaunting. What I was doing was establishing a relationship. The fact that um, this may or may not be my 10th, 12th, 14th, 100th city tour. Like, I go to these cities. I'm really there. Like, I'm really in these places. I really love these. I'm, I'm, I'm not available all over the world. I'm available in this country. And yeah, I have this lineup of great cities that I've done specials in. And this is one of them. I don't, it's okay if you don't agree. Allow me to convince you as to why it's here. And, um, that's a, a joyous thing to be able to do, a joyous thing to be able to share with a market. Having said all that, Neil Brennan is probably correct. I, I wouldn't suggest any other comedian try <laughs> You that. say don't spend 12 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> On Jacksonville or just any city? <laughs> any, <laughs> any, any city. city. Any city, but it, it was done for a reason. And remember, the name of the special is Great America. And, you know... Out of all the cities that you would use to um, showcase America, Jacksonville probably not going to make that list. And so, again, we were trying to show a last but not least sort of thing. Like, this is why this is the greatest country. Like, I could close my eyes and go, Jacksonville, the gem of the world. <laughs> yeah. And I imagine the tourism in Jacksonville has been uh, increasing ever since. Oh, yeah, it's skyrocketed after that. Well, as as you probably know, people from those sort of overlooked cities appreciate that. Like, I still remember the, a joke that Mike Epps said about Detroit, where I'm from, where he said, you know, everybody in Detroit, every dude in Detroit is walking around with finger waves and a briefcase. And I was like, that's so damn true. One. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the fact that. He knew that about my city and also about the fact that, you know, it's an auto-making town. So he had a lot of jokes, essentially, as we all know in Detroit, that you could be in a fancy restaurant and the guy at the table next to you who will probably be in a mink coat and some gators or whatever works at the plant and makes as much money as you do and you got on a tie. Absolutely. And so the fact that he sort of got that about Detroit, it always kind of stayed with me. Yeah, it's a very metal 
Middle America type of sensibility. Yeah. I'm from Ohio, so I, I, I certainly understand. And anybody in the Midwest knows that people from Detroit and Ohio and Chicago, we just all from Alabama and Mississippi anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all from the South. So, you know, those uh, those things tend to go over well in, in those kind of cities. But when we come back, I have a question for you that I have been dying to ask you. Mm-hmm. In this business, that's called a tease. So we'll get back to more Cat Williams as soon as the break ends. All right, we're back. Uh, We have more here with Cat Williams. And as I mentioned before the break, it's a question I've been dying to ask him because I feel as if he's most positioned to A, do it, and B, I just would secretly, as a fan of his, would love to see this done. So, remake of Harlem Nights. You as the lead. Who are the other comedians in it and why? (laughs) First casting move. I'm going to get this young, unknown, up-and-coming comic named Eddie Murphy. And I'm going to cast him. <laughs> Wait, hold on. <laughs> yes. You go cast him. Thank you. Right. Oh, yes. Yes, the recast. <laughs> that's that's the brilliance of Cat Williams. The recast. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. So now that we got that going. Mm-hmm. So the brilliance and the, the magnitude of Harlem Nights was the mixture of old and new. So we want to keep that. And let's start with new first. All right. So we we need to hear from Ha Ha Davis and DC Young Fly. We also need um, the amazing Jess Hilarious. Um, we also need to go across lines, right, and make this collaborative. So let me, without fail, say let's get... Uh, Kevin Hart and Tiffany Haddish in this. And then let's make sure that we get um, some of our legendary comedians that we still have. Our, our George Wallace and Linnell and Miss Laura and Paul Mooney. and Paul Mooney would be amazing cast. in that. <laughs> Everyone will be amazing. Everybody would be amazing. Yeah. So if this winds up getting done, yeah. Uh, I just want to be at the premiere. That's it. <laughs> Me too. No, <laughs> no Me cut, too. nothing. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up, uh, obviously, Tiffany Haddish and Kevin Hart. Um, because of and course, Jay Farrell. Oh, Jay Farrell. That's a good one, too. And I'm glad you brought them up because I know that, you know, for a minute there was some tension between the, the three of you guys, which has been squashed based off everything that, obviously, I read. And so, you're looking at me like real weird right now. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh, um, so, no, I was going to uh, ask you this about the, the state of black comedy. Yes, so you ma'am. thought I was about to be messy. <laughs> I in no way thought that. Okay. Um, no, I was going to ask you about the, the state of, of black comedy. Um, Kevin has provided one business model. You provided one business model. Tiffany Haddish, another. And just in terms of being seen and, and the money that they're making, um, how would you describe what the state of, of black comedy is like today? It's delivering what's necessary. It's 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 important that there be different vantage points, different styles, different cadences. All of that is is good for the good for the culture. Um, I think a lot of times people 
overstate the beef of it if one comic says something about another comic. That's the majority of time. That's not the spirit in which that's being delivered. Again, along with having the most comedy specials, um, treating this as a business, this is a competitive business. Um, unlike a lot of my peers, I'm trying to be better than my peer group. I'm, I'm trying to one-up. I'm trying to watch the last comedy special, see who I think is the front runner, and I'm trying to top that in a um, competitive type uh, fashion. So um, any bashing done by me should be tempered with the fact that I, I'm a competitor. I don't... Um, I don't wish that anybody earn any less than they've earned. I don't wish for anybody to be unpopular because of my words. Um, and my opinion is subject to be wrong just like anybody's is. But um, there's a spirit behind it that sometimes gets lost in translation. So who would you consider, taking yourself out of it, who would you consider the front runner in comedy right now? You just took me out of oh, it. Because <laughs> I knew I'm, you might answer yourself. That's you, why I took you, you out of it. You have to understand that I'm the stopgap. Okay. Like I'm the non I'm I'm the non cooperative piece and and because they can't get there, it means they have to reach and that reach is not a good thing. So um I'm trying to be more cooperative and putting more work out there and not um, just doing spot things. That I, it's time for me to put out a lot of work. So um, Meet the Blacks 2 is coming up this year. Mm -hmm. I just want to... Just drop that on Drop there. that out there. <laughs> and, that, and that just might be myself and Mike Epps and Lil Duval, who definitely has been Harlem Nights, and Michael Blackson. I'm tripping again. <laughs> and Zulai and... Uh, just an amazing cast. And then with Jay Farrow, um, the movie Two Minutes of Fame. So there's those couple things. Okay, I'll, I'll redirect to The Witness. <laughs> Thank you. Which is, so you obviously consider yourself the, 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 the front runner. Who do you feel like you're competing with? Oh, just me. It's like golf. Okay. It's like golf. You're competing with other people. And but I know in you're, essence, you're an avid golfer. I love golf. Mm -hmm. And shout out to Tiger. It's just a great moment when people get to eat crow, you know? It's just a good thing. When everybody's saying you can't do something, forgetting that this is not the right place for this conversation. You can do anything here. And so, you know, sometimes we have to be reminded of that. So thankful to Tiger for that. But I I don't know what I don't know what you mean when you say the front runner. I don't understand. Well, I guess who would you front runner to what? Who would you consider to be the person right now, or people, it could be more yeah. than one, that is at the top of the of the comedy game. At the top of the comedy yeah. game? Oh, I think Kevin Hart is at the top of the okay. comedy game. Okay, all right, game. that's I what I was getting I at. I didn't think that was in question. Oh, okay. Oh, right. no, this is your kick. Okay. Yeah, don't get it twisted. <laughs> <laughs> there are no heir apparents. Okay. It is Kevin Hart. So when I asked you who you feel like you're competing with, do you feel like, and I mean this... No. You don't feel like you're competing with him? No, no. Okay. Why not? If he's at the top. That's why I needed you to clarify the top of what. Okay. Um, that's the 
the world that he's um, in, I'm not really in that world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've taken that for betterment. I don't, I don't look at that as a knock. Um, I've, I've turned it down at least $100 million. That allows me to be in the predicament that I'm in. It's not really something that you can do in this business. Um, but by the same token, I have learned so much in this space of time where people have been watching me. You know, I didn't go into comedy thinking I was going to be where I'm at. I didn't think that I would have a platform. And then when I got Friday After Next, I just thought it was going to be that 15 minutes and I would return back to me. And that return um, never happened. So I, I don't. I don't lose sight of how blessed I am to to not be the number one guy. So the the money or the roles, uh, whatever bag that fits in that you turned down, the $100 million, was that because you didn't feel like that role was right for you or those situations? Like what was the rationale behind that? Honestly, I, I thought too highly of myself. In e- any of these situations that I was ever in, if there is a, opportunity where I don't know what decision to make, where I know this could be the best thing for me over here, or I can do this. I always ask myself, what would the black superhero do? I've held myself to that um, as rigidly as I possibly could, no matter how much pain it causes me afterwards, (laughs) just because I want to be able to hold on to to that uh, integrity. Um, and by the same token, I, I don't, um, any of the things that I turned down, I was well within my rights to do so. But was there one, or maybe there's more than one, and I say this from the perspective of somebody who doesn't necessarily believe in regrets, Yeah. Um, because I do believe everything happens for a reason, that a lot of times, even in the midst of what appears to be a mistake, it will get us to another place that we were kind of supposed to to be in in the first place. But with all that being said, do you, is there a role, a project that you still can't believe you turned down? For the first two years, three years of Kevin Hart's career, the first six movies he did were all movies that had been on my desk that I had given notes to and thought it was going to be me and them and punched them up and but no no I I, it, I I love comedy and I love the comedy fan base and I always want what's best for the fan at the end of the day and so I don't always see myself in roles I see the best qualified comedian in those roles and so I was very happy to not be that guy hmm was one of them involving The Rock. Just <laughs> were you Were you supposed to be with The Rock? Was it supposed to be you and The Rock together? <laughs> Look, I, I started this conversation off by saying I thought too highly of myself. I'm well, is saying, there such saying, thing, though? If you send me a script like Get Hard, I feel a whole different way about it than it turns out. You follow what I'm saying? Like, I'm... I don't want to say that I'm wrong. I'm just saying what I'm saying about it cost somebody 50 60 million dollars so who's right i guess they're right well if, having seen get hard 
I mean, I'm saying I'm seeing it as a script. As a script, <laughs> you follow what I'm saying, and, I, and I'm going, is this me? Uh, we look, we in- for sixty million. Is this you? Okay, <laughs> it's not me. Can I just say that? Well, that kind of makes you an idiot then, because you don't want this. No, yeah. I don't want this with this, and I'm I'm I, I'm already saying too much. Because I'm patting somebody else's pocket, and 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 that's never good. But what I mean is, all of these decisions had to be made for me. So I'm hoping that there. I always feel like nuance is lost in our society. Yes. And having seen Get Hard, I'm gonna just say it for you. That movie was awful. Like I, I'm gonna just say it for you. Now, that does not to me. And I love Will Ferrell. Like Step Brothers. But is one I'm of my okay f- with being in an awful production. Are you? If if my work's not awful. Oh. You know what I mean? When you're getting these projects, you're not assured of what everybody's role is going to be, what other people are going to do. You just have to look at it and figure, can I can I deliver this the way this needs to be delivered? And I, I laughed when I read the script, but I didn't see me. Mm. And that's about as tactful as I can be. Well, it was just... Uh I thought just based off, you know, this is just a, I am not a, clearly not a professional, not in the, in the business um, that you're in, but just, it just seemed to be very lowest common denominator in terms of a lot of the humor. And that's not to say I need, I don't need my shit highbrow. Trust me, again, as I said, I'm a big Will Ferrell fan. Stepbrothers. As am I. Love a, a lot of his work. I was just a little disappointed that it was, I expected more. And maybe because of the two names that were in it. So, but as you said, you're not, you're okay with being in a bad movie if you're a part of it is good. I'm unbothered. And uh, a lot of times. That was well done. I, 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 re- I, gotta say. I, res- I respect other people's viewpoints. I, I enjoy corny things in their place. Um, I watch as many fails on YouTube as I possibly can <laughs> just because it brings me pockets of joy throughout the day, oddly. So I get things that sometimes don't make sense. And um, as an actor, I, I'm always trying to find a role that is difficult in some way and some uh, a character that I can bring my truth to and... Um, have that resonate. So sometimes you do well, sometimes you don't. So what was the the truth that you brought to Uncle Willie, to Alligator Man in Atlanta? I wouldn't argue with anybody as it being the best episode that they've done in the series. Here's the thing. The universe connects itself sometimes. So this is the perfect place for me to tell you, oh, no, it was based on me. Like, I brought this, I brought that, I changed these elements, and I brought myself to it, because that's the answer that would be the most popular out there. The reason that it resonated is because for a good portion of the population, that's how they see me. It was just a blessing for me to already know that to know exactly what you wish you could get Cat Williams to say (laughs) and be in that position. That's the blessing of it, is to be able to understand what's going on on different wavelengths other than yours and understand, no, this is providing something. But the truth of the matter is that I never saw the script until I 
got on set and that Donald Glover simply said to me, and I quote, this was his only conversation with me. There were no table reads. There were no nothing. There was nothing but this conversation. Kat, I want to get you an Emmy. I said, you got the project? He said, I do. I said, you got the character? He said, I do. I said, well, then there's nothing else to do. Tell me when to be on set, and I'll see the script when I get there. The conversation before that was, what are you going to wear? To which I replied, a dirty wife beater, an old robe, and some flip-flops. And that's how we did it. Because sometimes less is more. And if somebody's already told me what the play is, it's called trust in the process. Or you're a genius. One of the, one of the two. He, he would be the genius. He, he brought it. I, I have to be receptive and allow my, my ego to be taken out of it for the presentation. But there's always a reward in the most difficult way. So just the fact that I could do one episode of one show and get an Emmy off of that is a true testament. So was the script, um, was that, I mean, did you... I didn't add anything. You didn't add anything. I didn't. The things that I added were nuance. And when I say nuance, I mean how he threw the car keys. <laughs> I'm saying nuance. His face up against the, I'm saying nuance. This, this was already, this was already done. And when you read it, what was your first impression? I do so few projects that I have such a high expectation for them, but I don't base it upon the type of money it brings in. I base it upon how it relates to homeless people that I might talk to or somebody or this young lady or her and her kids thought about it. Like I, I'm looking at it a, at a whole different angle, and I know that that resonated in a major way. Was that really you running? It's always really me running. <laughs> At well over 40 years old, I still run a 4-4-40. What? Absolutely. You run a 4-4? I can beat a 4-4. You can beat a 4-4? I've run a 4-1-8 this year. I'm like literally that fast. What? Hmm? Did you play sports in high school? I didn't go to high school. You didn't go to high school. That's right, because you had... Um, she was going to give me a reason. No. Oh, that, oh that's right, because you had no, stuff no, to No, no, no. I was going to be... I was, <laughs> I was it, unbothered. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just... Um, I mean, not to make light of it, because was, it was very serious, but um, uh, I remember reading a profile of you uh, a long time ago where um, I think you were homeless as a teenager, correct? I wasn't homeless. I just left. I didn't run away. Mm -hmm. I left. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I try not to tell the story only because I know that there are young people that listen to things I say, and I in no way want them to feel like that could ever be a good decision or an option. This was in a much different time, you know, than we live in today. But, um, yeah, I was... I had just, biblically, I had just read that Jesus was a man at 13, and so I lost it. I was like, me too. I'm out. You know what? I don't want to put up with this, and clearly y'all don't want to put up with me. So let's just end this right now, and I appreciate it. Y'all been good, and uh, I'll be gone tomorrow. And, of course, you know, as a parent, 
You just think, you know, you're idiot kids talking, you know. You're not understanding, like, this dude is packed. Yeah, so. Like, you were serious. Obviously, oh, yeah, you were yeah. serious. Yeah, yeah. Um, so where did you go once you left? I went to a truck stop, and I asked all the truck drivers where they were going, trying to find somebody going somewhere warm. And um, there was a guy taking tomatoes to Miami, Florida. So he let me and my Rottweiler puppy get in the back of the trailer for 18 hours. <laughs> so wait, not only did you leave, you yeah. left with a pet. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, Just as dumb as he could be. <laughs> that's uh, hey, You know what? I need another responsibility. Exactly. I'm like, that's kind of gutsy. You know, that's not yeah. really usually in the plans. Of- it wasn't that gutsy. Don't ask me how long we held on to this dog. <laughs> <laughs> so how long did you hold on to this dog? Oh, as long as I could. As long as I could. I don't think he made it another month, though, before somebody just made me a great offer. You know, great family. 50 bucks. But, you know, <laughs> what are you going to do? What was the dog's name? Rasha. Poor little Rasha. <laughs> You're the Larry King of your generation, Jamel Hill. I want you to know that. You have brought things out of me in this one little, yeah. This is all bad. The publicist is going to be furious. But I can't wait. You got at the heart of me. That's here. right. That's what this is all about, discovering who you truly are on the inside. <laughs> um, <laughs> the tagline. Yeah, that's why they pay me the big bucks. Okay, yeah. well, I want to thank you so much for joining me. Uh, this was really a pleasure. And again, as I, I told you at the top of this podcast, you know, you've said a lot of things that have really resonated. It's all jokes, but at the same time, it's so much truth in it. It's hard not to respect it. So I have no doubt that this next uh, comedy special you do for Netflix will absolutely be the best thing that you've done. So thank you. Yes. And can I urge anyone listening, make sure you subscribe. That's very important. You 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 want to um, champion the people that are unbothered in this frame um, because the easiest thing is to be bothered. We, there's a lot to be bothered with. There are lots of people who's you don't even understand that bothering you is part of their job. That's part of what they do. They get something out of that. And to find people that are unbothered is just a rare thing. And I think you're the perfect um, person for this. I think you're in the perfect spot and we're just lucky to have you. I don't even know what to say to that. And by the way, you do know you don't get paid for being on this. I just want you to know. I did not know that. See, now he's like, I take all that shit back. Take that last statement back (laughs) and just hone it down a bit. So as we do every show, we're going to close it out with a segment called Fuck It, I'm Bothered, which has become the favorite of millions, most talked about segment in the nation, everybody. And I know y'all didn't think I was going to let this show go without talking about the last episode of Game of Thrones. Spoiler alert. Spoiler fucking alert. So if you haven't seen the last episode, which is the next to the last, last episode, then you need to put this shit on pause and move on to something else and come back, save it for later. Although, as I continue to say, if you haven't kept up with Game of Thrones, that's your fucking fault, not mine. So let's just talk about this last episode. So fucking I'm bothered about the way that Cersei went out. Y'all, I know y'all feeling me on this, right? 
So let me get this straight. Cersei has straight up terrorized motherfuckers for about a decade. And she dies in the cradling arms of the brother she ain't supposed to be fucking under some rocks. Some rocks, y'all. She got pebbled to death. That ain't even right. Look, I know a lot of Game of Thrones fans have been disappointed. A lot of that disappointment comes from the fact that they've been waiting about two years for this series finale. Well, I just started it two months ago. So my disappointment level wasn't nearly at the level of everybody else. And I was disappointed in this last fucking episode because there ain't no way that Cersei should have gone out in such a pleasant manner. Her crying and weeping and all that, cradling, hugging up, canoodling with Jamie. Nah, mm-mm, mm-mm. Nah, man, she can't go out like that. So I got major beef with the writers for Game of Thrones because they let Cersei go out into that quiet good night. Yo, this the same chick that blew up a bunch of religious folks. She blew up part of city and she got killed by some pebbles. Mm-mm. Like old dog said, can't let that shit ride. I don't give a fuck if it's no kids or no old folks. No, she needed a dastardly death that was befitting of the terror that she reigned on everybody else. I mean, why couldn't they have Aria assume the face of Jamie and just murk her? Why couldn't the hound stick her? Why couldn't Sir Gregor, a.k.a. the mountain, turn on her? Yo, speaking of which, wasn't that kind of live about like how you got my man, uh, what's his name, Clyborn, Kilborn, whatever? Yo, he, he really mushed that motherfucker and that was the end of it. Whole point is this, Cersei's death was whack. When you have one of the greatest villains in television history, you don't have her go out, as somebody said on Twitter, over a building code. That shit is wrong. So fucking I'm bothered because Cersei died real whack. Anyway, I want to thank my man Cal Williams for joining me today. I had to get that off my chest, y'all. Of course, y'all tune in. For more Fuck It, I'm Bothers, tune in for more amazing guests, amazing co-hosts, amazing conversations. And remember, stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify Studios and Unbothered Inc. and recorded and edited by Rich Burner and Cadence 13. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Evan Dick is our executive producer. Jesse Burton is the executive producer for Spotify. And Denise Holly is the program manager. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. <laughs>